0: we're going to start this morning with a little bit of a story. If you uh, parents know what I'm talking about, I'm sure you do. The bedtime routine. Isn't that a glorious, magical event at the end of every day where the kids are headed off to bed and finally we can have a few hours of Netflix uninterrupted, let's hope. And uh, you know, so the bedtime routine is a magical time of day. Gwen and I, my wife, we have a two-year-old named Millie, so we have our own bedtime routine for Millie, and it's it's pretty pretty standard, I think. You know, we say it's it's time to go night night, and she says no.
1: Okay, okay.
0: And uh, so we say yes, it is. So we you know you um, know to bed and throw her in there. I'm just kidding. So <laughs> we put her up in bed. I usually read a book to her. We we say our prayers and and everything. So that's usually how the nights go. Well, the other day i decided to be a very spiritual father okay i wanted to be a really spiritual father so i decided to put the disney books away like okay tonight we're going to read a bible story okay so it was kind of a lesson to learn i guess that not all bible stories are family friendly all (laughs) right so i pull out this book i got and it's the story of joseph right? It's a nice-looking book. It has Joseph on the cover in his coat. He's smiling. I was like, okay, this will be nice, Millie. Let's read the story of Joseph. So just imagine me reading this book. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph, however, was his favorite. This made the other brothers jealous. Just wait till you have a sibling, Millie. (laughs) One day, Jacob gave Joseph a special, beautiful robe of many colors. His brother grew brothers grew even more envious. They came to hate Joseph. (laughs) One night Joseph told his brothers a dream he had. His brothers were very angry when they heard this dream. Do you think you'll be a king and roll over us? They asked. One day Joseph's brothers went to feed their father's flocks in Shechem. Joseph called Jacob, go and see if your brothers are well. When Joseph went to Shechem, he could not find them. They have traveled further, said a stranger. So Joseph went on in pursuit of his brothers. Here's where the story gets a little hairy. Here comes the dreamer, yelled one of his brothers. Then they plotted against him. Let's kill Joseph and throw his body into one of those pits and say an animal killed him. But Reuben, one of the brothers said, we should not kill our brother. See, Millie, that's nice. It's not good to kill. Just throw him into the pit. That's better. (laughs) When Joseph finally reached them, his brothers yanked off his coat and threw him into the pit. I'm like, oh boy, should I keep going? All right, it it can't get any worse. Then they sat down to eat. Soon a trading caravan on its way to Egypt came by with camels loaded with spices. Judah, Joseph's brother, said, let's sell Joseph to the traders. (laughs) So they lifted Joseph from the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver. The traders took Joseph away. Well, he goes, (laughs) bye-bye. That's right. (laughs) Bye-bye. The brothers returned home with Joseph's coat and gave it back to Jacob, saying, Our brother, your son, has been killed by a wild beast. Jacob wept bitterly. The end. Good night. (sighs) Oops. (laughs) Oops. So, you know, not all stories are exactly family-friendly. So before we get into our passage in Romans this morning, we have to start with one of those maybe less than family-friendly stories from Genesis chapter 15. But it's necessary for us to read this story to fully unpack what Romans 4 tells us. So Genesis 15, uh, starting in verse 6. And he... Abraham believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other kid's picture book. that would be good right there. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now shift ahead to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, what in the world is the significance of this story? Why would we start here? Well, to make this story mean even more, we have to first start by knowing some Eastern culture, some ancient Eastern culture. Back in, back in the days of Abraham, people would make covenants. They would make promises with others. And they would take these covenants and promises pretty seriously. And here's why. There's an obvious reason for that. In making agreements with others, all you really had was the other person's word or promise. You couldn't just go see Judge Judy and let her handle the dispute back then. Okay? there there was only really one way to ensure that a promise is kept, and that was by someone's word, okay? So that's why making a covenant or promise with another person was such a big deal. Now, what I just read to you, that whole business of slicing up animals, cutting them in half, was one of the ways in which people back then would make covenants or promises with one another, Here's what would happen. They would take these animals, like I read you in the story, they would cut them up, and then they would walk between the pieces of animals. And the reason that they would do that is to signify, may I be the one like that if I break my end of the promise. In other words, may I be cut in half, may I be dead if I break my end of the promise. Now, what makes Genesis 15... Ver, uh, very important and very significant, very special, is in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. From verse 17, in this covenant between God and Abraham, we notice that someone is missing. And it's very important to understand Usually the two people who are making the covenant would walk through the pieces together. I hold up my end of the bargain, you hold up your end of the bargain or, you know, that's going to happen to the one who breaks it. But in this passage, there's no Abraham. You notice that? There's no Abraham. He doesn't walk in between. Only God passed through the pieces as the smoking firepot and the torch. Why? What is the significance of that? Of only God passing through. Listen to this. Only God passed between the pieces. Not Abram. This covenant being as others others God makes with men, only on one side. God in covenanting with men promises and gives something unto them. But men give nothing to him, but receive from him as was the case between God and Abram. In other words, it's not about what we do to earn the promises of God. It's not about what we do to earn it. It's that he has taken the fulfilling of promises on himself to fulfill. Because he can swear by no higher authority, God swears by himself to keep the covenantal terms. We give nothing to him, nothing, but we receive from him by faith alone, because God has walked through the pieces alone. And that's exactly what the first part of Romans chapter 4 is all about. And don't worry, we'll actually see why this promise in Genesis 15 was very significant for us later on as well but romans chapter 4 verse 1 let's read this verse 1 to 5 what then shall we say was gained by abraham our forefather according to the flesh for if abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before god for what does the scripture say abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness now to the one who works His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. These verses in Romans chapter 4, they speak to this issue of faith versus works. How are we justified before a holy God? Faith versus works. What is it? What's the answer? Well, the best way I've ever heard it put is through using a math equation. So sorry if you hate math. It's not too bad, I promise. But it shows how faith and works are a part of salvation, a part of justification. Here are the two options. Either we believe that faith plus works equals justification... Notice that's not faith alone. Faith plus works. Faith plus something else equals justification. That's one option. The other one is this. Faith equals justification plus works. In other words, what this is saying is that it is by faith alone that we are justified, and then works are an outflow of our faith. Not a means to obtain justification, but an outflow from our faith. Faith equals salvation. Faith equals justification plus works. And here in Romans 4, Paul is using Abraham to prove the point that the correct equation is indeed faith equals justification plus works. It is by faith alone that we are justified. Maybe you noticed the quote from our story earlier in Genesis chapter 15 used here in Romans 4. Romans 4, 3, it said, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's straight from Genesis fifteen six. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now look, It doesn't say that Abraham had faith and then he worked for God and then was justified. It doesn't say Abraham believed God so he had to meet these requirements first and then he was justified. It doesn't say Abraham believed God and then he went through a self-improvement course. He improved his character and then he was justified by God. It says this, Abraham believed God. In other words, he trusted God. He put his hope in God's free mercy. He looked away from his sinful, broken, ungodly self to God's mercy and God's grace. And that belief, that belief, that faith was credited to him as righteousness. That's it. Faith alone. It is by faith alone that we are saved Romans 4, 4 to 5. Let me read it again. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, here's the good news this morning his faith is counted as righteousness. That's the gospel. Faith equals justification and then works flow from it. I think for us to understand this in its full entirety is to see the word gift in verse 4. Did you catch that? It's so important to remember that our faith is a gift. It's a gift. Ephesians 2, 8-9 For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing at all. (laughs) At all. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Hebrews 12, 2, I love this. He said, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the founder of our faith. It is a gift here's the reality. There is nothing that we do by which we can just manufacture faith. It is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God from start to finish. I believe, you know, this is one of those truths that we're kind of inundated with again and again. You might be thinking, yeah, I get that. Faith alone, I get it. I hear it all the time. I get it. But do we? This is such a hard thing to really get. I don't know about you, but I certainly need a reminder really every day that Ephesians chapter 2 says, this is not of your own doing. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, the gift of God not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And here's what happens. When we forget that, when we forget that our faith is a gift, we boast. We boast. We do the things that Pastor Chuck talked about last week. We have these superiority complexes. We judge others. We impose legalisms on ourselves and others. Why is it so hard? Because I think it is. Why is it so hard for us to really get and really grasp that faith is a gift? And we are justified by faith alone. Why is it so hard for us to get? Psychology Today, this is very interesting. They put out a study a few years ago of the reasons why it's hard to receive a gift. Do you have trouble receiving a gift sometimes? I mean, it depends what the gift is for me. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But really, we do have a hard time receiving gifts sometimes. I thought this was very interesting. One study point was that humans don't like receiving gifts because it requires letting go of control. Think about it. When we are the ones giving, when we are the ones doing something, we're in control. Aren't we? We control it. But receiving it invites us to welcome a vulnerable part of ourselves. Receiving's not always easy to do. Another study point noted that it's difficult to receive because we have a defense against intimacy. Receiving creates a moment of connection, the study said. Prioritizing doing over receiving may be, listen to this, a convenient way to keep people distant and our hearts defended. We do, do, do. You need to do this. You need to do this. We do, do, do. Could it be because we don't want to get intimate with God, we don't want to deal with the deep recesses of our hearts, so we mask it, and we do, do, do. Faith plus this equals justification. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, receiving the gift of faith, it sounds easy, doesn't it? Yeah, I'll receive it. But oftentimes, it's a very, very hard thing to do. It's hard to just receive. And so that's when we revert back into this faith plus other things equals justification. I don't know about you, but I need this reminder of Romans chapter 4 every single day. Every day. That our faith is a gift and we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. So let's continue on in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, 1 to 12, it primarily deals with this issue that we've been discussing, that we are justified by faith alone. And it uses Abraham as an example. But then Romans 4, starting in verse 13, it begins to widen the scope beyond just Abraham. And it actually brings us into the story. And then we get the answer to why we must be justified by faith alone. Why we must be justified by faith alone. So let's read verse 13, Romans 4, 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So first off, let's answer this question. What is the promise to Abraham and his offspring? Verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring. Well, if you go back and you read Genesis, God indeed, he did make a promise to Abraham that he would give him this land called Canaan. But if you notice in verse 13, Paul doesn't really mention that. Paul says the promise is that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. Paul, he widens the scope of the promise. He's saying this promise, that promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis is actually just part of a larger story. And this larger story has now been revealed through Jesus. And the incredible part of this is that we are a part of this story. We are a part of this promise. Look at this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Who is Abraham's offspring? The answer is revealed in Galatians chapter 3. Look at this. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the good news. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to promise. We're in this story in Romans chapter 4. Right there it shows it. And we are heirs of what? We are heirs of the world. Heirs of the world. Listen to this quote. Christ and all the saints are heirs of this world, of the world to come the future salvation, the inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, never fading, and reserved in the heavens. And then listen to this. For we are heirs of God himself and shall inherit all things. Romans 8. 16 reinforces this point the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and if children then heirs we are heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ what a promise what a promise and this promise this unbelievable is not that not a glorious promise And this promise, this promise, this is when all we talked about at the beginning really matters. This promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, it is the, for if the inheritance of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. The promise is received. This promise is received as we saw in verses 1 to 12, by grace alone, through faith alone. That is how we are made partakers of this promise. By grace alone, through faith alone. And then verse 16 really starts to blow us away, if you're not blown away already. Look at this. That is why it depends on faith. He's answering the question, why is it by faith alone? That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. Why are we justified by faith alone? Why does it matter? Because listen, if the promise rested on our works, it would fail. It would fail. We are justified by faith alone so that this promise may rest on grace, on God's actions, not on ours. Then and only then could the promise be guaranteed to come to Abraham's offspring, to come to those in Christ Jesus. And this grand story called the covenant of grace throughout all of Scripture shows us that this promise is indeed guaranteed. And it is guaranteed because it rests on grace alone. And through all the pages of Scripture we see that even through the failures, the trials, the highs, the lows of the people of God throughout all of the ages, one statement continually rings true that this promise still stands. This promise still stands because it does not rest on man's actions, but on the grace of God. It rests on him and his actions. And this unfolding of this grand story, this grand promise of all of Scripture starts in Genesis 3.15, right after the tragedy of man's sin. It says, I will. I will do it. God will put enmity between you. He's talking to Satan. Between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the story of Jesus all the way in Genesis chapter 3. It's the start of the unfolding of the promise. And all of Scripture points us to this fact. The covenant of grace the promise God made is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. And this promise through all of the ages still stands. Later in Genesis, God destroys the earth through a flood, but he saves the human race through a man named Noah because the promise still stands. As the flood subsides, God places a rainbow in the sky, and he says, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth, because the promise still stands. God made a covenant with Abraham. He walks through the pieces of animals alone. He swears on himself, because the promise still stands. God bears a son, Isaac, To Sarah even in her barrenness and old age because the promise still stands. In the tumultuous life of Joseph when others intended to harm him God intended it for good to accomplish what was done the saving of many lives because the promise still stands. God raises up a man named Moses to lead his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt because the promise still stands. He parts the Red Sea. He makes a way for his people from shore destruction because the promise still stands. He makes the walls of Jericho fall down. He makes the sun stand still in the sky because the promise still stands. A small shepherd boy defeats a giant with just a sling and a stone, saving God's people from their enemies because the promise still stands. God establishes an eternal dynasty under the small shepherd boy under King David, whose descendant would rule for all of eternity because the promise still stands. And even though God's people stray away, under Ezra and Nehemiah, the exiles of captivity return, the temple is rebuilt and the law is read again because the promise still stands. Esther is chosen queen for such a time as this to save the Jews from certain elimination because the promise still stands. And throughout the many years of captivity, slavery, and exile of Israel, Isaiah would prophesy of a Messiah who would usher in a new kingdom of peace and justice with a new temple, with perfect atonement for our sins because the promise still stands. Jeremiah tells us that God has a plan for our welfare not for evil, to give us a future and a hope because the promise still stands. Ezekiel shows us that the dry bones will be raised to life because the promise still stands. Three men would stand in a fire and not be burned. The mouths of lions would be shut because the promise still stands. Hosea continues to seek out and redeem his unfaithful life, a wife as we are continually sought after by our Heavenly Father, even in our unfaithfulness, because the promise still stands. The prophets of the Old Testament testified to the coming Messiah, pointing to his spirit, his justice, his mission, his forgiveness, his peace, his saving grace, true worship and healing, and they point to Jesus because the promise still stands. And then something incredible happened. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us because the promise still stands. And through the Word of God, the Son of God, Jesus, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them because the promise still stands. And this Jesus, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them because the promise still stands. Jesus, he is the father of the prodigal son who embraces us. He's the shepherd who seeks after his lost sheep. He's the woman searching for her lost coin because the promise still stands. He is our bread of life. He's the light of the world. He is the door through whom we enter and find safety. He's our good shepherd who holds us in his hand. He's the resurrection and the life whose voice brings the dead to life because he is the only way, the truth, and the life because the promise still stands. And then he carried up his own cross, the hill of Calvary, because the promise still stands he stayed on the cross he took the wrath of God and he bore all of our sins because the promise still stands and he breathed his last and he declared it is finished because the promise still stands and then he raised again from the dead he conquered our sin and death forevermore because the promise still stands And he ascended into heaven, but he left a piece of heaven with us. The Holy Spirit who works in the hearts of all believers to sanctify us, to comfort us, to counsel us, and to guide us to the last day. Because the promise still stands. And then Jesus, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He will come again to make all things new. And there will be no more tears, no more pain or disease. And we will dwell with him forever because the promise still stands. And we will rise to reign with him as heirs according to promise because the promise still stands. Reach church. The promise still stands because scripture alone shows us that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. Come on. The promise still stands. The promise still stands. So you might be asking, what does this mean for me? <laughs> what does this mean for me? If you are in Christ, listen, if you are in Christ, your story directly intersects with this grand story of Scripture. You are a child of promise. You are heirs according to this promise. And that means in your life, the promise still stands. Stands and always will stand. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at that day of Jesus Christ because the promise still stands. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself for the promise still stands. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand because the promise still stands. And then as we end in Romans chapter 4, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It will be counted to us because the promise still stands. The promise still stands. So what does that mean for me? <laughs> well, listen, I'll end here. What, what do I do? We are called to do something. But we're not called to do something to earn his promises. We're called to do something because we have received the promise. Hebrews 6 13, listen to this passage. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have, look, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone on a forerunner, as a forerunner, on our behalf. At the end of every service we say, let us resolve to know nothing but one message and have nothing but one purpose, to live to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. We have this steadfast hope that goes beyond anything the world has to offer. We are heirs according to promise. We have this steadfast hope. If anything this past week, watch the news. It shows us one important thing, that in this world, nothing is guaranteed. Nothing is guaranteed. When tragedy strikes, we're reminded that in this world, nothing is guaranteed. Surely, We remember those afflicted by tragedies, Las Vegas and the hurricanes, and for many other things, I'm sure, around the world that we don't even know. But we, as people of the promise, have this guaranteed hope. Guaranteed hope. A sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. And it's this hope, it's this hope that we are called to share with the world. The world is ours. We must share this hope that we've been given with an unsure world. We have a certain and sure hope that goes beyond it. And we are called to share it. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us by saving us by grace alone, through faith alone. that in Christ alone, our hope is found. And this is all to your glory alone. May we not boast. May we never think that what we do can earn your promise. But may we receive it as a gift through faith alone. And may we share this certain and guaranteed hope that we've been given with the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to share this song with you. You can just relax, take it in, stand if you want. It talks about the promise, it still stands. No matter what may come our way, the promise still stands.
2: Mountains, and I believe I see you do it again. You made a way when there was no way, and I believe I see you do it again. Sweetly, when you moved the mountain, and I believe I see you do it again. When there was no way And I believe I'll see you do it again You moved a mountain And I believe I'll see you do it again You made a way When there was no way And I believe I'll see you do it again it's faithful for
0: We're just gonna do one more song this morning. And I thought it was fitting, especially with what we talked about this morning, the events going on around the world, that we close the service with this song about the sure and steadfast anchor that we have in Jesus, the hope that is guaranteed our cornerstone. So let's sing together as we close our service this morning.
2: My hope is built on nothing less In Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest thing, But i trust My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest rain, but wholly trust in Jesus. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong, in the Savior's love, through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of Darkness seems to hide His face. I rest on Him, unchanging grace. In every heart and stormy again my anchor holds within the land. Come on, my anchor holds. come with trumpet sound, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne.
0: Let's sing it one more time. There's something special about when we, as the people of God, sing words together, when we declare it together, when we believe it together. We are the church, heirs of the promise, the hope of the world. May we never forget that. So let's sing that our hope is found in Christ alone, for he is indeed the cornerstone. Let's sing it one more time.